DVD. It's a statement. Do you ever fantasize about listening to Hank? Death by DVD, the Hankmas Thanksgiving special. I am your host, Hank the World's Greatest, Hollywood Hank. It's my new name, going with Hollywood Hank. And with me, as always, he's in your house, Alexander Nash. How you doing, Nash? Why am I in your house? Why am I not in my house? I don't know, but you've always been there. Apparently, you were invited. Would the next week people leave home? I know it's not your custom to go places you're not invited. Oh, God, don't reference that just yet. I'm not Am I your... <laughs> if this is a quantum leap reference, are you saying that I'm your Dean Stockwell? Eh, I don't know. Dean Stockwell's a little bit cooler than you. A little bit cooler, but I still wear turquoise and smoke a lot. So, I mean, there's some similarities. Do you jackets? Do you talk I, to Ziggy? I have a leopard print jacket behind me. That's not going to work. No, well, I talk to myself a lot. I feel insulted, um, but at the same time, I'm willing to admit I'm never going to be as cool as Dean Stockwell. So we didn't do a show last week, and we were supposed to. It's the first boner of the new Death by DVD, but I was out shooting a talkie, a real boner fide movie. Manny Serrano just shot his new movie for Mass Graves Pictures called uh, Channel X, and I was out there. I was a really important part of the movie. I think I was some of the glue that that held the production together. I made coffee a lot. Um carried some pizza boxes a few times you are um, known for your glue i yeah i i definitely i might have huffed a little while i was even there but no i was the world's greatest pa and i got to shoot the behind the scenes footage for manny's new movie which we will continuously keep plugging every episode until it's out and you can buy a dvd and watch the footage i shot of how awesome it is to make a movie and um Stuff like that. I mean, if you're into behind-the-scenes footage, I'm not really selling this. I'm not, you know, there's explosions, <laughs> and there's there's titties, and there's it's the greatest goddamn thing ever. We're taking it to cans. I'm taking it to cans. It's going to be like Hearts of Darkness. It's going to fucking cans. blow goddamn the, couple just of Just some blood. soup cans, perhaps? Yeah. Just... Don't tell the people what which cans. Not the one in France, but the one in the aisle at the grocery store. Meet Campbell's. You've been the cans. I can write that on the uh, the advertising material. And probably be a Progresso light two for one sale. I mean, Campbell's, come on. It's condensed. I want to get that natural soup. I really want it to be organic. Uh, soup aside, soupy sales, soup, soup aside. So, yeah, we didn't do a show because I was really busy being a, a Hollywood guy and keeping this this great set together, you know, because <laughs> it wasn't for me. This poem definitely wouldn't have been made. You know, I, I definitely Hollywood, I, I, New Jersey. Yeah, Hollywood, Trenton, New Jersey, and let me tell you, if it wasn't for me making a couple cups of coffee 
office. People would not have been able to get this movie done. Not at all. But thank God I was there and you'll be able to find it. Probably not at a store near you soon because all of them are closing and nowhere carries. Uh, oh, all many stuff stuff. is um, other stuff's on Prime right now, right? Uh, his Bye. wife's film, the wonderful uh, Lindsay Serrano uh, movie she made with a guy named Louis Cortez, uh, Attack of the Brain People, is available on Amazon. You can check out Theta States on Tubi. I don't believe that Blood Slaughter Massacre is available on um, Amazon, and I do believe that DVDs have print. It was on Amazon Prime for a while because you could buy it for like, I don't know, $4, I think. It was for quite some time. I do believe it had a pretty successful run. And uh, Channel X hopefully will be out on Tubi. I think Blood Slaughter Massacre might be coming to Tubi sometime soon. So you'll be able to find his films. I'm almost 100% positive you can purchase or rent Blood Slaughter Massacre on YouTube right now for like $3.99. You can follow him also on Facebook, Instagram, and um Twitter, Masgraves Pictures Director, and inquire to him personally about where you can find some of these wonderful, wonderful products. And you can harass me. You can find me on social media, and I'll send you some links and figure things out. But it was a cool privilege. It was a lot of fun, and it was a lot of hard work. Sarcasm aside, it was a lot of cool, fun work. So we missed a week, had to come home, relax a little bit, and then figure out what we're going to do. So it's it's December, Tanksmas. Thanksgiving, the same theory applies to what we've done the last 10 years. I take over the show. Essentially, it's just some movies that uh, I really enjoy that we're going to talk about that really don't have a, a bigger place to talk about. And, uh, you know, you, we were talking about this before the show. You uh, came up with the idea for Thanksgiving because you were pretty much doing all the work and needed a break. I took over and we did. Here's the difference, though. That was for like six months. I did all the work. It wasn't even six. It was like five months. It was like from July to December, I was doing all the work. And then you picked up. And since then, you've consistently done way more work than I have for the last like eight years. Well, I think for a core, for the most part now on this, uh, the Death by DVD reboot, we try and keep it to an equal amount of movies we pick with decent input that there's a lot of back and forth. If, um, you know, you haven't seen something or don't particularly like something or vice versa. A lot of the case, it's me not having seen something. So, you know, it goes back and forth between us. But this case, uh, there's nothing like particularly crazy or wild about any of these movies. There's no interconnecting theme. There's nothing that makes them one and the same. It's just uh, some well shot things that I like. Well, okay, four of three of them are well shot things that I like. One of them, it's I don't know if I really even like it at all, but we're going to talk about a whole heck of a lot of it. <laughs> Before we do that, do you did you see anything this week? Recently seen. Okay. Um, this is a terrible recently seen, but I watched Body Count, not the Ice uh, Ice Tea. Band and I'm pretty sure he was in a movie called Body Count as well. But uh, no, the sounds right. The uh, 1980s Ruggiero Diodato Italian slasher film, which I had seen before, but I really never paid that much attention to it because it always bored me and all the prints looked like shit. But I've watched it and like sat down and actually really paid attention to it. And I have noticed something about Italian slasher films. Um, like they created slasher films for the most part due to uh, Giallo or Gialli films and really kind of started that whole idea of a slasher film. But the, like a Giallo film is very different from a slasher film as far as like Americans, when Americans started making slasher films, because Giallo films have there's a certain artistry to them. And then later in the 80s, when Italians started making slasher films, it's like they have no fucking clue what they're doing. It's just 
They're there's really... there's so much accurate precision that's not necessary between the flow of the two things that one's trying to copy the other and it, it just translated well, differently to Western. I mean, if that makes you, sense. Because, like, I'd say the first really majorly significant, and I know I'll get a lot of shit for this, but what I'm for what I'm talking about, like Friday the 13th spawned so many slasher films. So did Halloween, but really Friday the 13th kind of set a pattern of what American slasher film would be throughout the 80s. And when the Italians tried to co-op that, they just had no idea how to do it. Like, the characters are always really kind of terrible. Um, they don't really know how to, like, shoot the, the violence to where it's not, like, artistry. I, I'd say the best example of an Italian slasher film, not a giallo film, it would be something like um, um, Stage Fright. That's more in the slasher vein of things than giallo, and that's a really Old well-made... Old Owlhead. Yeah, and that's a well-made kind of slasher film, but just so many of the, like, the great European directors from the 70s when they started trying to make slasher films, like, Jess Franco has zero affinity for making slasher films. He can, like, crap one together, but it's just, there's no spirit behind it, and that goes for... Uh, Diodato and his trip into making like a kind of a, a camp style slasher film. It's just David Hess is in it. He does his best. He dubs himself, so that's good. Um, but uh, Hess is the best. It's just like a mess overall, story wise, and the like. There's no artistry in the kills. They just he just like it just seemed like he didn't care. Like he's talented at making hardcore violence, I think, Diodato more than, like, um, House on the Edge of the Park. Not even well, you know so much funny the is gore, he's, but, yeah. He's such an exceptional photographer in general, and he's got a lot of artistry behind that, so it is, I don't know, displeasing to, you know, experience just, you know, especially when he's usually so vocal with being violent and you're trying to take it to an artistic level, somebody you know that is incredibly talented behind a camera, to have something just so lacking and just because it is just quick. And that's the last thing you kind of want. And the aspect of, of a slasher movie is quick and mindless kills and at least something again, like uh, we did scream recently on a show. That's a big problem with scream for me is it's uh, how interesting can knife wounds really be? You hand them to somebody like Dario Argento and you'll get something profoundly sexual and deviant and, and penetrative literally with a knife. But Wes Craven just stabbed some people. And well, that's cool. In the gut in real life would suck, but in a movie, it's not visually interesting. I'm sorry. It's just not. Jess Franco and Bloody Moon. You look at that film and tell me that is a well-made slasher film. He just didn't give a fuck. I don't think Diodato gave a fuck about this film. He was good at brutality in films and really pushing that tone of violence. But in, in like an American camp style slasher, he ended up, it feels a lot like, um, pod people or uh night visitors the well who directed it was it luigi cozy directed that one god i'm getting all my shit mixed up but um i think it was uh, all i can think of is the um the abel ferrara one with uh mcmanus from oz what what are you talking about that's not pod people that's body snatchers never mind oh no no, no. i'm thinking of pod. i'm talking about um Mystery Science Theater 3000 pod people, Italian E.T. And my brain went somewhere film. else. Yeah, I'm thinking Night Visitor. Something else. Something else. But um, I thought that was a yeah. Bee Gees song. But anyway, yes, that's a bad Italian ripoff slasher film. And it is not belong in the canon of other Italian horror films of that era whatsoever. But Hank, I, I give it over to you. 
There is a, a lot of extravagant Italian slasher films that definitely do have their due coming on Death by DVD. We need to specialize more in some of this goofball uh, trash because a lot of it, despite being pretty awful, does have some redeemability with just how awful it actually is. Completely changing the pace and going in a very different direction. Um, from 1972 by Bob Raffleson, The King of Marvin Garden uh, stars Jack Nicholson, Bruce Dern, and Ellen Bernstein. It's a sad movie about life sucking. So Jack Nicholson does this radio show talking about, you know, life in general and how sad things are. And he lives with his grandpa. He's just a guy just kind of making it through life. His brother, Bruce Dern, is a, a dreamer, I guess you could say. And he's always into the next big scheme or I don't know. He's just a very odd man that is a very, very assured of himself that he will never falter or be wrong. And he is in a love triangle with a fading Cupid doll prom queen played by Ellen Bernstein, who travels with her stepdaughter. And they're all interconnected in a, a love triangle. He's got this uh, real estate scheme going on with Scatman Crothers where he's going to get an island in Hawaii pretty much to himself to start uh a casino. Well, he's got a felony, so he can't start a casino, but something of the, the same likes. And he tries to pull his baby brother, Jack Nicholson, into the horrible, horrible world he's created for himself as things uh, begin falling down. It's kind of Shakespearean when you actually say everything outside. It's one of those tragedy type things. And it continuously gets sadder as you realize, in most cases, like real life, it's pretty hopeless, but you just have to you just have to keep going. It's very, very upsetting, and then the movie finally uh, explodes in an equally very horrifying and upsetting ending, incredibly tragic, but transitions very quickly after that back to real life and what I think was one of the greatest endings of a movie I've ever seen. Um, a very subtle ending where it just ends, where just things go on, because that is uh, what happens in life. Things just go on whether you like it or not. Have you it's a good seen, movie. Have you seen Thief? Michael Mann's Thief with James Caan? I have, but I, it's not in any time in this decade recently, or maybe even the century. You need to see Thief again. Check it out. I'll I find some I'm just, I, Is you, it sad? The way you're doing I mean, at times, but it's not like, you know, depressing sad. It's still a heist movie. But if you, um, the way you were describing that film, it kind of reminds me of the way Thief is, to where it all seems kind of all pointless at the end. It's like it's an epic fight well, between cops and robbers always, and no one's ever going to come out the winner. This one situation. wasn't so much pointless. It, it wasn't overwhelming with nihilism as it's you can't really control what happens. And sometimes things happen and you just got to go and you just got to deal with it. And you can remember things one way or you can just continue going on and you just got to get over it or you don't. Just stuff is going to happen, though, and it's not always pleasant. And, and this is just kind of an exquisite display of. Uh, brotherly love, people trying to connect, sympathy. It's just a great realm of characters, and it's early Jack Nicholson. Him and uh, Bruce Dern still have full heads of hair, so you know you really get to see them. I think they really acted better with hair. I'm gonna throw that out there. Not that you know Nicholson <laughs> falters later in his career, but when he had full coverage, there was just something different about his attitude. And I might be wrong, but this is the um, – let me just double-check. But Bob Raffleson and Jack Nicholson made a few movies together. I think they made The Last Detail together, which is um, – I enjoyed The Last Detail. Uh, it's, again, another sad movie. Pretty, pretty good movie. Randy Quaid at his best. That's a, a starring role with Randy Quaid. And then he made a picture, I believe, if I'm not wrong, with um, Karen who's Black the, and Jack Nicholson. Who's the other Navy man? Oh, gosh. I – I can't remember the actor. It's Jack Nicholson. 
and I cannot remember the other actor's name. As I'm not looking through, oh wow! Apparently, he directed quite a lot of uh, Five Easy Monkeys. Pieces. Was the other movie you were talking yeah, about? Yeah, Five Easy Pieces was with Karen Black, and oh wow! I'm, I think I'm very incorrect. I don't think he did the last detail. Well, then you're wrong. I can't remember who did. Was it? Oh, wait a minute. Who did do the last detail? You just confused the fuck out of me, Hank. I love episodes like this because I just have a good time to put the uh, Jeopardy theme in. I'm thinking it's like, I know this is not the correct, correct answer, but the last detail is maybe somebody like Mike Nicholson, or it might be Norman Jewish, or, yeah, Jewish, not Jewish. Uh, you're on a, a close path. It's Hal Ashby. Hal Ashby, okay. And the amazing Hal Ashby. Thought-provoking movies. Yeah, Hal Ashby. There's something that deserves the death. But did he do Cannibal Run? Yes. Oh my God. He is a, he's a, an amazing, <laughs> amazing man. Got a long way to go. Been a short time to get there. We gotta get on with Hank's mess. It is um, Otis Young played Mule Hall. Okay, there you go. Couldn't yeah, and Carol Kane was the young whore as listed in the IMDb credits. Correct. Yes, young whore. So, Thanksgiving, this is going to be a mess, but we have a little bit of order. We're going to start, I think, like pulling teeth. We're going to go into what's the most difficult movie or what I deem to be the most difficult movie on this list. From 1978 to 1985-ish, Horror House on Highway 5 by Richard Casey. This movie, um, not recently, but in the last few years, got a really cool release by uh, Vinegar Syndrome with a lot of special features and has brought a lot of attention, I guess, to this movie. And I've just been fucking obsessed with it for no reason at all. The first time I ever heard about it, I was at your house. I saw it on your shelf <laughs> and I kept asking. I'm about sorry. It. Well, for two weeks straight, I was like, hey, we should watch this movie. And the entire time you were like, uh, why don't we do this? And you fucking evaded. We went shocker. Put shocker in to fix it. It was like, yeah. no, put shocker instead. Everything you could think of possibly but this movie. So I immediately went home and was like, I have to buy this. I have got to see what, what makes him not want to talk about this movie. And I understand, first of all, and I guess we'll get into that. But this is just a. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to be insulting, but I don't know if anything would be insulting at this point. I think this movie's gotten everything thrown at it, but it's like a poor man's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Nah. And that's that's very complimentary, I think. That's you know, too complimentary because it's not even close. Yeah, I, that, well, that, that, that with, they had a concept. Like they knew they wanted to make, um, you know, a, an American horror movie. And I think that's what started a just psychotic mess. And, you know, you hear things like... Um, took Jim Van Beber years to make Charlie's movie and he sold blood and was a pizza man and all this. And this is a little bit different. You know, there's no absolute crazy backstory, but it was shot throughout several years on weekends um, with a lot of inexperienced people like Richard Casey went on to do, I think blue oyster cult music videos for a while. And then he's done horror house on highway six, which maybe we'll talk about. And it's just, it's so bizarre in its own right and uncomfortable and nonsensical that there's just something fucking beautiful about it that you just can't look away. Well, ultimately, a good portion of it is about loneliness, which ah, I, I kept telling Hank all week because the uh, Vinegar Syndrome Blu-ray has the original soundtrack on it. And the soundtrack I was always used to on this film was the um, kind of cheap. Uh, I didn't watch it. 
You did watch it or did not? I, I did. I watched this movie more the than soundtrack not better. Movie. You know, at first I really wanted to disagree with you because at the beginning it's it's a little bit different, but then it starts fading into the same thing. And you got to wait for it. And it is about like 20, 30 minutes in the difference in pacing. And it's just it's not that it dates it and gives it more of an 80s feel, but it does. And that's almost necessary to make it more pleasing and like palatable because it's fucking I love the vinegar syndrome version, but the music is so unnerving. You just can't. And it's it's not unnerving is a bad term because, OK, what they wanted was unnerving. What they did was annoying. Get Sorry. On, OK, get on my wavelength on this. Just follow me on this. OK, you go through the movie of Horror House and Highway 5, which is. We'll get into the plot here in a little bit, but once you get to the two brothers, uh, Mabuza and whatever the fuck the other kid's name is, Gary, is it Gary? I think it was Gary. Gary. Um, and they kidnap the, the girl, and event, and Gary has this kind of relationship Gary. going on because Gary's real stupid, and he kind of wants to free this kidnap. Possibly girl. a necrophile? But then he eventually ends up killing her, and he's dancing around the apartment with her dead corpse. And they're playing that song like everybody knows, everybody knows. I don't know. It's funny you even bring up that scene because they had. It's haunting as fuck. Well, it wasn't even supposed to happen. They had other stuff to do, but the actress, they had to move on. They didn't have any more time. They'd been shooting it for years and she was done and ready to go. So they were like, all right, well, let's let's do this then. Okie dokie. And they did that and it works. I mean, but it works on on a on a bunch of nonsense and so nothing really works. Like God, there's no. a theory to this. I mean, you want to go with what the plot is because it's it's there's no plot. Um well, I mean the plot is about two brothers of an ex-Nazi rocket scientist who are trying to kidnap a girl to bring him back from the dead even though he's already back from the dead wearing a Nixon mask killing people. And a bunch of college students are trying to work out his previously done rocket experiments. That's the fucking plot. It doesn't make any goddamn sense. Um, but I don't think it's supposed to. But like the, uh, I'd say like where this movie drives really heavy is the characters. I think the two um, the two brothers are the strongest characters because Doctor Mabuza, he's just bizarre. Yeah, odd uh, German dialogue gets really experimental funny film weird. reference. Oh God! There's so many weird references in it, and just the well, relationship. A lot of the movie is scary. Is what drives the plot to me personally. A, a lot of the movie itself is bites from other things, and what's really, really enjoyable. And again, man, just trying to sell vinegar syndrome products here. There is a commentary with um, Richard Casey, the director, and he, he's just very thorough throughout all of it, explaining where a lot of scenes were bites and. Him just, you know, really reflecting on movies he really, really liked and was passionate about. And when you watch the movie with his commentary, you really get to see it in a different light of, you know, all the different years and how they pieced it together and, and all it took to really make it. You get this distinct appreciation that no matter how bad it was, this guy just, you know, he, he was going to keep working on it no matter what. And what leads me to be a little bit baffled is you gain this really great appreciation for him. And then you watch Horror House on Highway 6 <laughs> and it just never good. seen it. Goes yeah, right out the door. It's on Tubi, and I will say, for, I think for the first time ever on this show, uh, viewer discretion advised, I often don't hate movies. And I wouldn't say I hated this, but it's just, I don't know, it's just bad. Okay, and it's even just modern giving you, trash. Well, it's even beyond modern trash. Like, I'll even give trauma defensive higher budgets. There is a scene where somebody gets beheaded, but it's clip art done on, like, not even, like, Adobe, but maybe paint and just... It's clip art added in of somebody being beheaded. 
So if you're a discretion advised, if that's your cup of tea, it's it's very sleazy and it's very uh, shaky, very shaky. But Horror House on Highway 5 has just, I don't know, it's got a charm to it where you're almost hopeful by the end of the movie and you're really hopeful for the wrong characters. Like I think Dr. Mabuse is where you're, you know, you're just become fascinated brain with eating maggots that he's concerned about the entire movie. that are falling out of his nose that are never fucking explained. And there's an invisible whip that just suddenly starts attacking somebody. And, you know, the, you've got the great rake to the old head scene. There's just some crazy gags. Like, where they things- really explain what they're like. I, I mean, I did just describe the plot to you, but you never really know what they're doing. Any of this for like, well, they why they want to go- bring him back. Oh, well, them. I just figured, you know, they wanted to bring his dad back. You know, that's their dad. So and why these like, I don't know. It's just it's a whole mess of shit. But like the movie is really like loaded with strong characters and I don't mean that in a positive way I'm talking about like stereotypes and archetypes like the uh, the stupid guy from the college who's running around and gets the rake to his face who's credited as the character's name but I'm um, the pothead by uh, yeah. Mike Castagnola like his acting is really over the top he's just playing a typical kind of stoner dude and all the acting is one of the greatest characters in the top. movie though like I'll give the pothead some some credit for being pretty entertaining um, I, I just I think out of everything, you you want so much more out of who these characters are and what's going on in their presentation. Like Dr. Mabuse takes over and is just absolutely insane. It reminds me a lot of. um, Oh, God, what's that movie we did the commentary for? That's the. Uh, it depends. We've done quite the a last few. one we did. The Winter Beast. Winter Beast. It really you reminds should remember me. Winter Beast. You watched it nine fucking times. I've watched it much more than that, unfortunately. <laughs> but it reminds me of that dinner theater guy from Winter yes. Beast in the fucking plaid suit. Just this over the top. You know, you can tell some hearts being put into it, but this just doesn't fit and suit anywhere. You know, this is just such a bizarre piece of movie history. And it's got so much like love into it. Like everyone's really trying. And it's one of those things like, did they all joke about it? Did they all you know, realize looking at dailies like this is shit, but we're going to keep working. Or did everyone, you know, really, you know, put their dicks into it? Well, I think it's just it's so weird because when you go to the 70s and the 80s and homemade style movies like this to where they're doing a lot of stream of consciousness filmmaking, it seems, and it just kind of all gets edited together. And it could have something to do with um, the way the script was or the budget. But this is the final product. And again, ends up being very weird, weird. And now if you go to most movies and like especially cheap movies that are shot in back like. Nothing is this weird anymore. No one's trying to do anything this kind of original or interesting. I mean, you got They're like, all just trying to make like shitty slasher films or whatever. They're just all kind of like just doing the same I mean, repetitive You've got product. some freaks out there like Giuseppe Andrews, though, that I mean, nobody's seeing their shit, but they're out there. At I least mean, there his are shit's people. weird. I'll give him that. I can't stand to watch most of it, but at least it's fucking weird. I've unfortunately never seen any of his work, and I longingly have looked for it, and most of it's out of print and hard to find. So you out there in Radioland, if you want to make this a very Mary Hankmas, give me some Giuseppe Andrews stuff to watch. I'd enjoy it. <laughs> I like oh, the that's weird, an interesting I think dude. That's, uh, he is. He, he is a very interesting guy uh, as an actor and as a director, and it's you know funny. He's a pretty talented guy, but you only see him very, very little. You know, every Every few years, he'll pop up in something. But one of the, the really charming things about Whorehouse on Highway 5, I think, really is Richard Casey and just, I don't know, some of the ways he, he did shit. Just, like, 
trying to light a shot and you're you're looking at this movie and you're looking at how they shot it and you realize like they just hung up red and black fabric on the walls and you know th- there's no reason to it you just realize there's a sheet nailed to the wall and it sort of adds to the insanity of the characters and what's going on but at the same time you realize like shit he didn't have money for lights and this is what's giving it that weird red hue kind of like uh, Hooper's eaten alive so it's very simple things that as you're watching the movie you start to really appreciate that like man they they really tried here they really put some effort into this and then it goes you know it became a midnight movie and had its, its run and circuit and became legendary and Vincent popped out this nice little piece with it but there's just so much to appreciate I think and it's not I don't I don't think it, it's particularly anyone's cup of tea I mean, it's it's really out there with just not even its notions or a lot of the visuals that are shown in the movie. It's just kind of out there. It's very disconnected. It's not a traditional slapper in general. It's it's just like back from the like when people still use that word. of It's 42nd Street as fuck. It's just wild, crazy shit. And if you're not into stream of consciousness filmmaking and just watching people kind of dick around like it reminds me a lot of a movie called Runaway Nightmare, where it's just. You really put in a lot of effort to this, and uh, like at what I mean, making this very humorous, weird fucking piece of art that won't be remembered fondly by anybody, but the, like you know the trolls, the people like me and Hank, people who are gonna watch and go, wow, that's that's got a lot of character to it, and that's why I like it is because you show your character. Sure, and, and that's makes not sense, a, but it's from what? the heart, definitely. It's not a negative thing either. You know, there's trolls and like internet trolls and douchebags, but that was a, a kind of troll. Yeah, this is a yeah. fond Ramiro term that he loved to call specifically the fans of Day of the Dead, that they were his little trolls and that he too was one of them, that we're the guys under the bridge hoping, you know, just for example, that Salazar lowers the gate and the zombie apocalypse happens, that we're the real deviants out there looking for fun stuff. And if you just want to appreciate a, a fucking weird piece of, of, of film history, yeah, check out Horror House on Highway 5. But, you know, I implore you, if you're a fan of this show, I think it's something really worth checking out. But what's on Tubi and what's on streaming right now is definitely whatever came out in the, the 80s, 90s. The original soundtrack, they're two different experiences, and they really do. Want, the original experience is so much more annoying. And it and it's, ma- it's for that <laughs> intensive purpose. It's made to be annoying. It was a bunch of, like... 14, 15 year old punks from LA that uh, Richard Casey got to record and do the soundtrack for. And it's just, it does not it's goddamn like stop. Weird surf rock. Yeah. It does not stop. It's, it's, that, like, it's not hardcore punk, but it's got that like X from Los Angeles kind of rockabilly surf punk theme to it. The, uh, the, the sunset strip punks. And I prefer the cheap fucking public domain soundtrack to take use on the, uh, the like the you know the the cheap dollar DVDs that you could buy of this back in the day. I say watch it on Tubi, and I prefer that version better. It looks like shit, but go ahead and buy the Vinegar Syndrome Blu-ray, just to have. Yeah, just like we told you on uh, the last episode, you can tell them that we sent you, but they will not respond to it at all. But you can if you just want to make people aware of us. You can go ahead and do that. I want a sponsorship. God damn it! Somebody just give me a sticker. So Horror House on Highway 5, do you have a rating for this bad mamma jamma? Oh, it's a zero. <laughs> Ooh, a big fat. I think that's a first time. It gets time. five cult points, but it's a terrible fucking movie that is not pieced together correctly or made correctly at all. It's no, yeah, a zero, it's, but it gets a lot of cult points. 
It's definitely five cult points, and um, I'm going to do an even more daring than a zero and give it a zero and a half. <laughs> Negative, it, huh? It, it oh, gets, just a half. Yeah, just a half. It, it gets a half. Um, I don't have an explanation. I just didn't want to give it the same rating as you, to be honest. Okay, you're being a petty bitch. I, well, yeah, it's Hanksmas, Thanksgiving. It's it's the season to be petty. So now we're going to move on to an old favorite. This was featured and talked about on the very first Thanksgiving, and if I recall correctly, I somehow managed to fit in a reference to this movie for like the first seventy goddamn episodes of Death by DVD. Annoying, about so it a lot. Yeah, a lot. Um, and it's one heck of a movie, and we'll probably talk about it for like five seconds. I don't know. 1987's Near Dark. Uh, uh, direct, uh, was this her directorial? I think this might have been a directorial debut written by Catherine Bigelow, directed by Catherine Bigelow. And Maybe. I'm not positive. Uh, this well, might be one you have to look up. Yeah. Oh, the Academy Award winner, Catherine Bigelow. Or is, did she I'll, win? She won, didn't she? For Hurt Locker. Yeah, okay. Just making sure she won. She wasn't just nominated. I'm pretty sure she's an Academy Award winner. Yeah, this is her early days. This is a, a Western movie. This is kind of one of those things that I always think, you know, if John Carpenter actually watched movies that he would really enjoy but also be mad at because it's kind of what he has <laughs> attempted to make his entire career, um, you know, a, a Western movie. And Bigelow and Eric Red went at it, you know, like we want to make a Western movie, but nobody's going to fucking watch a Western movie, which is funny because Tombstone came out a few years later with Bill Paxton. But it's neither here nor there. I think Tombstone was kind of a fluke because Westerns were, were very, very out. And that's, you know, kind of knowledge. Westerns are out. And they came up with a, a really cool twist of doing a non-Gothic vampire story and a Western and then completely goddamn taking Jim Cameron's cast from Aliens was the key that you had these people that came off a really hard show together and had all bonded and really gotten with each other and instantly got into this. And, you know, Near Dark is a, is a vampire love story, but some of the things that are more interesting about it as time goes on is really how this movie came to be and the people who, again, like Horror House on Highway 5, were just genuinely excited to be doing something and working on a project. And it all kind of started with Bigelow and Eric Red did the script, Bill Paxton, I, I don't know if Catherine Bigelow sent it to Bill, but Bill Paxton got the script and he read it and he instantly went to Lance Hendrickson and said, this is fucking cool. Read this. Check it out. Hendrickson reads it, checks it out and is like, this is it's a vampire movie. Like, we just finished Aliens. Like, we don't want to do a vampire movie. You know, this is kind of cheesy. And I, I don't know the full like transition or how things changed or how. Lance Henriksen jumped on board and got really in, but Bill Paxson managed to get, you know, Lance involved and he went in and became this Jesse Hooker character, this this father redneck vampire and probably, in my opinion, the greatest Western made uh, in the 1980s. And that's competing with a lot of Clint Eastwood stuff at the same time. But it's unique in its own right and its sense, especially in design. Uh, photography, soundtrack, Tangerine Dream did the soundtrack, so you know right there it's going to be fucking awesome. And then your all-star cast with um, Adrian Pastar, who, who's fine, Jenny Wright, Lance Henriksen, Bill Paxson, and Jeanette Goldstein. So you've got uh, Vasquez, Hudson, and Bishop from Aliens, all back at, bad at being badasses, and then uh, Joshua Miller as Homer, one of, I don't know, probably my favorite character despite Bill Paxson acting it up in what I've you know tried to be my whole life, the the cool redneck which just doesn't happen unless you're no. joe bob briggs or bill paxton i don't know if any of them guys are cool either um hey bill paxton was fucking pretty cool here's what i'm going to say about this film 
This is a damn near perfect film. It really is. And it's, it's one of those things you can't say often. It's not. If you get to every department, soundtrack, cinematographer, or I can't remember the cinematographer's name, but it's like Adam, Adam Greenberg. Gold, Greenberg. I always want to call him Goldberg. Uh, Greenberg. Which is funny because direction. I French. Everybody's acting. Um, it is a perfectly put together film and it creates a amazing tone is what sends you through this entire picture is the tone created by all of those different departments working together. Lance Hendrickson is one of his best performances, I think, personally. Just one of how key, fucking intense he is. But once Hendrickson got into it, he's not, like, you know, going to show up on set and not be into it. And you look a lot at his character, most of that was his design and, like, his fingernails. He went out to a guy in Hollywood and had them attach big, giant acrylic fingernails and then went home and broke them with pliers and just showed up on set like that. He wouldn't break character. He came up with this elaborate backstory of how Jesse became a vampire and how he changed all the other characters, Severin, Diamondback, or how he uh, met Homer, which it's just putting so much thought and effort into this. You know, yeah, it just worked so magically because even looking at the detail of the characters, like you notice... um, Lance Hendrickson specifically, he has a Confederate battle flag sewn into the back of his trench coat. And you see it throughout the movie. It's somewhat prominent uh, if you look for it. And then toward the end at the hotel scene, he well, I think it's toward the middle, actually. He mentions to Caleb, I fought for the South and we lost. And you finally get the connection that there was a key to all of this. Another movie we're going to talk about later, there's a tattoo that shows up throughout the movie that has you know, a, a reference to something else. And that's something that you bring to the table with layers as an actor. And that's what really brought this together is it wasn't just Catherine Bigelow saying, do this, do this, do this, Bill Paxton, Hendrickson, everyone brought he did something. his job as an actor. Like all the actors do their fucking job. Well, some it's of the not most- just showing up on set and pretend play. It's doing the work, doing the research, finding out who this character is. Lance Hendrickson, beautiful. Does that Bill Paxton knew who he was playing. Jeanette Goldstein yeah, like knew a who lot she of the- was playing. A lot of the very beloved, like memorable, memorable scenes from this movie were mostly ad-libbed by these guys really getting mm-hmm. into it. The uh, the whole bar scene, one um, a migraine and B twelve played a lot of part of that too. But like Bill Paxton, just all of that, the finger licking good. I hate him when they ain't shaved, and uh, he says something ridiculous too, like, "Hey Jesse, he smells like an old tent cat or pole cat." Pole cat. Know. Yeah, some fucking colloquial weird shit he picked up living in Texas as a kid. Just he he shines. And that's it's one of these weird things that, you know, like when we covered this years ago and talked about it, it's just this overt appreciation for it's it's better than uh, The Lost Boys. It's it's a fucking different movie. Like comparing this to something like The Lost Boys is ignorant and unfair because the caliber is just not the same. It's not even the same ballpark. Um, Yeah. Like. We're going to get a little like filmic here. We're going to get a little film school. But do you not think that Adam Greenberg's visuals, his color palette that he chose works perfectly with that soundtrack and how they complement each other throughout the entire film? Those and I don't know what order the the wet streets that reflect the neon and all that mixing together. I think it's just fucking perfect. How does that work? I mean, I don't I don't know. I guess we should have looked this up. If Tangerine Dream produced them a soundtrack or it was obviously watched and they recorded it afterwards. So I'm not sure on this one, but usually it's usually after. But that's not some people will do a soundtrack first just to set a mood on a set. But more than likely, they did it afterwards. So it might be Tangerine Dream just picking those tones to go with the the visuals they were given 
or it just could all be incidental. It's kind of the beauty of movies. And Catherine Bigelow showed her chops as a filmmaker because she is very much a brilliant filmmaker at times. Like even something like um, well, she sold this with big dick energy too because she wrote this with Eric Red and had made a deal with him that they would both write a movie together, and they did his first. And then did Catherine's. And so when she sent this spec script out, it was with her foot down, I'm going to direct it. So when it got picked up, everyone wanted to work with her and liked her ideas. And they said pretty much, we're going to give you the first three days of the shoot. And if we don't think you're up to par, you're out and we're going to replace you. And I mean, she showed up over prepared, fucking storyboarded entirely everything, had Adam Greenberg. And if you want a reference of what his work could be like different than this, he did Terminator. He did the first Terminator. So, again, she poached. <laughs> she poached a lot from Jim um, at, at this time period, which I don't even think they like were, were really acquainted when this was happening. But all of it just comes down to just literally she had big dick energy and she obviously flouted it because you see this as a finished polished piece i mean this is one hell of a show like um if you go to blue steel which she made i think that was the next movie she made after this she might have made something in between but anyway blue steel which is not a great script it's a very kind of mediocre script overall but Catherine bigelow is a director it that blue steel is a beautiful looking movie um, as well as like it's acted really well um, by Clancy Brown, Ron Silver, Jamie Lee Curtis. Again, they're, they're not really given much to do, but they take everything that they are given and make the absolute most of it. Um, so you can really see her chops in even her lesser films of just like, OK, you take the material you were given and you were able to turn it into something that is enjoyable despite being maybe a little formulaic, a little bit blank, because this is just a vampire movie. There's nothing special about this. What makes it special is how they made it, what the actors did. Well, a lot of it's removing... is not much of anything. Well, you remove a lot of the stereotypical things that came with a vampire movie, and especially look at this time era. I mean, Hammer was kind of dying, and vampires aren't really... A thing you had a couple flashes here and there like fright night and again something like the lost boys but it wasn't the culture wasn't really there so you completely stripped it and you add it to this desolate western setting and uh, you know truly shooting at night and actually capturing how night looks being lit differently and just having that realism you you feel this almost fear despite there being a romance to the movie because you know that these characters are dangerous you know what you're watching is fantasy but there's also a serious level of danger to it all and then you have the the love story unfolding between may and caleb and you don't know i mean there's a part of you that wants to be a vampire there's a part of you that thinks it's awesome to be like severin and travel around the world and then you see the vicious nature and the the lack of humanity, the lack of emotion, the lack of soul. You know, you, you, you've got this just great transition with Caleb having to deal with all of these things and realizing truly at his core he's human. And, you know, the nightlife just isn't for him. And it's, it just all translates and, and, and unfolds so just wonderfully. I talk a lot on this show about tone. And a lot of people might be confused what I mean by tone. It's not just about colors and color palettes and all that. It's basically every machine working together creating a feeling in a film and this movie has so much feeling in it created by all those things brought before just how it's shot how the actors are um how the um the music relates to all of this that is how you create tone and style and emotion in the film you have to be like know how to be a filmmaker and that's very obvious in this film she knows how to be a filmmaker to create a piece that is incredibly 
interesting overall by just being a standard sort of vampire movie that's also kind of a little bit of a western and stuff. There's just nothing that like great about the story, but she well, makes so you gotta it look great. at what and they what, all make it great. But I mean, what particularly makes a western a western outside of people and cowboy hats? I mean, there's a lot of formulas with train robberies and horses, but for the most part, westerns are either revenges or love stories that fold into you know a very different style. I mean, I'm trying to think of um, God, what's that genre? The the Watchers. I'm trying to think of the one that has that beautiful shot right at the end where he's uh, framed in the doorway and turns and walks out and walks into the, the middle of nowhere. Uh, John Wayne references are definitely not suitable for the show, but nope. you like, okay. Uh, something maybe a bit more apt going a little bit off, but like night of the hunter, which is a uh, early nor and, and just a very different style of its own. Charles Laughlin's only uh, direct only film. I think he died right after he fucking made it. Um, that of cancer that has like the same formats and feelings of what your atypical Western could be. I mean, it could have been almost an episode of Lawman or something, you know, it could have been a TV show that it just had this, format that carries over and can be used, you know, pretty much for anything, but really what makes it a Western, like they have horses, they have hats and they're that's really, gang. yeah, they're I the, mean, the cool bad guys in the old West, basically. They're Butch it's Cassidy just, and the Sundance kid, you know, mm-hmm. you just got to look at that format. And like I said earlier, this is kind of what uh, John Carpenter has always wanted to do just to elaborate on that. The man even says it himself. He just wanted to make a cowboy movie. It's his, his gods were John Ford and John Houston. He just wanted to make a cowboy movie. And you look at his career, Escape from New York, um, especially Assault on Precinct 13. All of these things are fucking Westerns. It's like uh, the Alamo is Assault on Precinct 13. Yes, basically. It's the exact same <laughs> fucking thing. It's it's a or, Western. Uh, one of those other ones that I can't remember the name of right now. I'm yeah, I can't come up with any John Carpenter movies. I'm like, oh, shit, I don't know. Oh, I can come up with the John Carpenter movies. I can't come up with Westerns. I'm terrible. I just don't do Westerns. I don't watch John Wayne Duck, movies. I don't watch fucking, no, nah, just not, I'm not into it. It's just not my fucking thing. I've seen a good handful of Westerns. I mean, I've seen Unforgiven. I've seen some of the bigger ones, but like all that old school, like 50s and 40s, fuck that. I can't stand it. It's just not my thing. Wild Bunch is okay. I enjoy The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Nope. Uh, no, no. Paint Your Wagon. Uh, fuck no. Not a Lee Marvin singing fan. I like Lee Marvin. Not a Western fucking musical fan. Yeah, I will say a personal note. I detest musicals. If it's not Phantom of the Paradise, um, I Rocky Horror is all right, but it's still no Phantom of the Paradise. So near dark, um, you know, I, we talk, we, I guess, I mean, we can stick on this for a couple more minutes if you want to. But, um, you know, we all know how I feel about Wild Bill Paxson. And, and this is definitely one of the top performances for me with him. And I've always emulated that Severn character and just been fascinated with how much of a badass he was. And, uh, you know, you grow up a little bit and you watch the movie and it's just such an unredeeming son of a bitch of a character. But you you can't picture anybody else playing it. You can't see anybody but Bill Paxton. And so much of it was just him truly getting into what he was doing. And the same can be said for Lance Henriksen and Jeanette Goldstein. And like, um, you know, in the script, it, uh, Jeanette Goldstein's character was to have blonde hair. And, you know, she ends up getting the job and Bigelow you know, told her, don't worry about it. But she'd already envisioned it. She had had this glamoristic faded Hollywood look, that, you know, and she all of it came the, up. The dark roots, the grown out 
But yeah, because you're not going to have time to keep dying and living in a a fucking van driving around. So it's going to be, you know, faded out. But she's still glamorous. And, you know, she, uh, Jeanette Goldstein herself, came up with her own background. You know, she was changed in the 40s. And that was her look. It was the blonde bombshell sort of thing. So all of these puzzle pieces come together because everyone put so much fucking work into it. You know, it wasn't just Catherine Bigelow giving pieces of paper out. This was her... I don't want to say, uh, you know, as a term proving herself, but this was her, you know, stepping up in a very male oriented world and really kicking some ass. And it's funny that this is always remembered as like such a cult classic, such a great horror movie. It's such a cult piece. Yeah, I guess. It, I, I guess it's just a well-made fucking movie. Yeah, it just, really all it is. <laughs> I feel it almost. And I, mean, horror, I, I don't whatever. think it, cheapens it by saying it's horror but at the same time i wouldn't really say that I, you know i don't think this is fair to call it a horror movie and i think a lot of the audience that this deserves won't look at it because they'll go eh, it's a horror movie it's about vampires and there's a lot of different levels and layers to this that deserve equal amounts of appreciation from the soundtrack the photography just uh catherine bigelow getting all these people together I cannot remember the the group who does the uh, when they walk in to the the bar they play that that fucking weird oh, little bump that plays there. Yes, yeah, that's the first time fucking perfect. And then right after that, it's um fever. Yeah, the cramps begin to play. But that just that intro because I'll hear that song. Automatically stops my tracks every time I go, oh, you're dark, walking into a bar. <laughs> and that's, that. that's uh, we'll do one more piece of near dark trivia and move on. And that's that's a favorite scene by most people. But Bill Paxton was prone to migraines. He woke up that morning and was you know really fucking sick. And if you've ever had a true migraine, they fuck you up. You can't do anything about it. So he got his girlfriend to call Catherine and say like. Bill's fuck, you know, can you get a medic? Can you get a doctor on set? Can you do something about this? And they, uh, he got his very first shot of B12 in his life. And, you know, you can, you can see it in that goddamn scene. He is just electric and filled absolutely with energy. And, and just most people like go. I mean, that's an actor letting it go. Sure. He had basically drugs to help him, but I mean, that's that extra push motherfuckers. You fucking let yourself go into the scene and just become the character. And that allowed him to absolutely become that character for that moment. Oh, most people truly adore the finger looking good scene. But out of all of that, my uh, absolute favorite is the, I hate them when they ain't been shaved. And then just the gross sucking wet noises following that. It, it all is just wonderful. And it's violence is, I think, significantly scaled down to call it a horror movie but it is a pretty elegant it's a horror film but it's a really really well made horror film that i mean defies that genre tag that so maliciously maligns a lot of other films and that's what i mean by i think a lot of people don't end up seeing this because they just lump it into horror films and they don't you know care to watch it they're like I just think there's two kinds of films. It doesn't like this genre thing. There are good films and there are bad films. That's the two genres. And this is a good film. It belongs up there with the rest of the shit, just like The Shining or fucking any other like. Well, too, I mean, that brings up a whole level of same level. Well, yeah, I mean, that brings up a whole level, though, too, of, you know, do you want to consider The Shining a horror movie or what do you want to consider it in it's a horror subgenre? Movie. 
Yeah, you know, it's just subgenre and adding things. But sometimes when you apply these labels, people will go out of their way not to watch things. And that's, I guess, a loss on their part because Near Dark, as we said 10 years ago, and I'll say in 10 more years, and I'll say quite more, is a pretty good movie. <laughs> I'm going to give it five out of five. Cult points, regular points, all the points, every point you could give it. Five out of five, a hundred, a million, every point. Yep, it's top ratings all around. Everybody give it five.
burials now made without formaldehyde. Burials not advised to consume of pregnant, nursing, driving, living, breathing, or any other reason whatsoever. Burials not applicable for sale in Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Hawaii, Illinois, Indiana, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Massachusetts, Michigan, Minnesota, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New Mexico, North Carolina, North Dakota, Ohio, Oklahoma, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, Vermont, Washington State, West Virginia, and Wyoming. <laughs> creativity with playing old clips and general time filler all around. Now, back to this riveting episode of Death by DVD.
let's move on. 2013, here's somebody I talk about all the time, but I don't think you and I have ever talked about one of his movies together. I don't think we've reviewed one. Back in the old live days of Death by DVD, I did two solos on this gentleman's work. Talking about Jeremy Saulnier, and this is his 2013 second feature film, Blue Ruin, one of, I, I will boldly say, favorite movies ever. I'd say top, top big old dick of a movie that I really, really enjoy. I introduced you to Jeremy Saulnier when I said, hey, I, mean, oh, I didn't want to see, see this. I want to see this green room movie that's coming out and coming around around me, but it was coming out around you and you saw it and went, Oh my God, that was good. Yeah. Well, you had told me he a blue ruin that I really liked. And then you watched that and then you lost your goddamn mind. Yeah. You, you had told me for quite some time, um, sometime after you introduced me to bellflower that you need to check out blue ruin. It's by this guy that's from around your area. You're really going to like it. It's really up your alley, which, um, you know, I guess I have a type of movies that, you know, generate toward me that people will tell me that I like sad guys. That's your type. That's the kind of movies you like. A lot of the times people will go with that direction and I, I won't really, you know, dig it. So I don't, no, I think I looked up the movie and didn't really, you know, care for for what I'd read uh, or synopsis wise, and think it was that interesting. And then I saw Green Room at a select showing in Florida, and it was just. It wasn't what the movie was about that that blew my mind. It was how he did it and and how it looked. And, you know, a lot of people and, you know, talking about Manny at the beginning of the show, bring him up now. Manny's not a fan of Green Room. He didn't find it that shocking. And, you know, he you know has said to me before, sorry, I'm paraphrasing here, buddy. I, I should get you to sign a release form. You know, people talked it up and said how violent it was. And he watched the movie and he never found it, you know, to be that extreme as to where me and I'll, you know, strongly disagree. I, I found the violence to be so in your face with something like green room that it, it was hard to get through and something like blue ruin getting back to that subject is even more significant because there's a much more graphic display of violence. There's a gore score for this movie, but um, this is Jeremy Saulnier's film with his best friend, uh, Megan Blair. And it's about a, a bum for all intents and purposes who became a bum because he couldn't cope with his family being murdered, finds out the man that murdered his or is responsible serve time, I guess, for murdering his father. You find I, I'm, I'm mud mouthing this. I'm getting too well, deep into like, the centrages of the plot. You take over this movie, like is the way it's laid out because you don't know what the hell is going on. Yeah. See, I'm giving it away Blair. too fast. Yeah. Well, you're just, I mean, cause the plot is almost incidental to what the movie is and you just find out little bits after you're introduced to this homeless guy, um, who was, living in his car and then you get little bits of information then he wants to kill this guy oh he probably killed this guy's well parents. you're given it's even just, like it, going back to the westerns you're given like a very open revenge story like okay this gentleman's family was killed by this guy so he's going to seek revenge but what you slowly start transitioning to is a very inept hero and almost a parody of action movies itself because you're supposed to do all the right things and get revenge and he does all the things that you see in movies he does all these dumb ass mistakes that you see in movies movies that you think is bravado and he's just trying to do the right thing where in turn it's it's violence for the sake of violence the two wrongs literally do not make a right you you cannot escape facts two wrongs don't make a right and that's just well no matter how hard you try you can't fix it like it, i mean it pretty much shows like because death wish is a fucking fantasy this shows where revenge and vigilante brutal reality because it's just 
a bunch of assholes killing a bunch of uh, another bunch of assholes. Well, you know, and, and no that one too, wins. It's, not it's even just revenge. Is, is specifically, like you get to the end of the movie and you do have this representation of of the family of the Cleveland clan that they are. I don't know, obviously, with all the guns in their house, up to something. But you know, um, just talking about commentaries here again, uh, th- that came from experiences in Sonia's life. That you know, he knew somebody that had a fucking Ingram that they their dad kept an Ingram under the, the chair. And I, I will uh, say on the sentiment of growing up in the same area that all of these guys grew up in, there's some some stuff and some interesting people. And a lot of this, I wouldn't say, is culturally rooted. But maybe that's one reason why this hits me and has so much importance to me. Is I did grow up here. They shot the movie in Richmond. They shot the movie in Delaware. Um, some some offtakes in uh, Brooklyn, but mostly around this area and in Alexandria, Virginia. And I know all that. I grew up around that area, and I'm very familiar with it. So there's like a, a sense of familiarity. But I think there's a, a sense of familiarity with the character of Dwight that he's an everyman. You don't care why he's homeless, but you care the emotion that he's putting into what's going on, and you you understand what's happening. And as you slowly get delivered more and more and more of what's going on, you begin to find hope in this hopeless hero and 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 you know you get to this wonderful sequence where he goes and finds a friend that he went to high school with that he thinks might be able to help him and the movie like goes to this this completely different level it steps up to a different par of seriousness when this character is introduced and these things begin happening because the violence wasn't there was only one awful extensive extension of violence past his parents being killed and that was his act of revenge but after this it just spirals out of control to where no matter what they're gonna blood will be drawn you have to do something about this and i think his mortality comes into play and he realizes you know now i'm rambo you know essentially in the book because rambo dies in the book going out of the building and you know just as a metaphor he knows he has to die and you know somewhat christ-like there's even a scene before that where he's still you know homeless and he he goes and, and is bathing at the beach and he sinks himself in water and you get this transition where you acknowledge like dwight is gonna go on this mission that he's he's gonna go after these guys whether wrong or right and you're faced with as uh, with the friend that's introduced this this very non-violent ex-marine loaded with guns excited about the a-team violence isn't the answer violence isn't the solution you're haunted with that through the entire movie because he fumbles and fucks up so constantly you're just reminded that this isn't what you should be doing you shouldn't violence. be doing this yes i mean he first of all you're really bad at it and second of all violence just begets more violence which begets more violence he and, and that's where the movie catapults is because it turns into this this display with pam fucking brady or no it's, it's, it's jan brady it's or her real name's pam which brady was it what are you talking about <laughs> in blue ruin the mother at the end of the movie um Oh God! What were you saying, Eve Plum? I'm sorry. It's Eve Plum. It's Jan oh, Brady. That was Eve Plum? Yeah, that's that's oh, from the Brady Bunch. Okay. The mom never... at the very end, and then the um. No the, idea. The other daughter, Hope, is Stacy Rock, who is Lexi in Murder Party. So yeah, they a little family, you know, bringing back in. But no, Eve Plum was their big score for this. You got Jan Brady with a machine gun. That's pretty fucking awesome. For five minutes. Hey, still um, Jan Brady with a machine gun. You have this idea of him wanting to get his vengeance 
for this act that happened to him. And he does get his vengeance. He fucks up all along the way. And then he gets to talk to his sister who he hasn't talked to for years, who she basically thought he was dead. And then it's like, Oh yeah, I fucked this up now because they're after her. And it's just like, the, this you have to go to cycle is never wherever. going to end. And towards the end, he does try to end the cycle himself, which is like, well, you know, yeah, that's there. There comes, can we just end this? And no, it'll never be over. Well, that's where everything really snaps is that he almost degrades uh, to, to like a childlike state. And he finally the incident with Teddy happens and his friend and he's got this body in his trunk and he he gets to their house. You know, these these people's home and he you expect there's going to be some big shootout and he's training for it and he's ready for this to go. And nobody's fucking home. <laughs> nobody's there. And it's just like this this monumental scene. He builds a fort to hide in. He searches the house for guns and then he uh, he he he. he finds the tape recorder, not the tape recorder, the, uh, the, the phone, and, and hears the messages on it, and he goes out and he records this message that you don't really get to, to fully hear, and then they finally get home, and that's the really deciding point, is he stands there, and it's so pivotal because he's waiting, and he's waiting in his heart and his head because he wants to hear them go. He wants to end this. This is over. And the first reaction is the the male, you know, yells, "We're gonna fucking kill his whole family." And that's where Dwight snaps, and he he makes that decision. He, you know, it's it's beyond life or death. It's beyond your control. There are other people at play here, and you've caused this mess, and you have to own up to what you've done. You can't just hope that things are gonna get better. And he steps out, and he takes that fucking shot. And I mean, and that's. That's just just the the most heartbreaking end of the movie. The keys are in the car. The keys are in the car. And it just leaves you, I don't know, not even empty. It just makes you realize how quaint all of this existence is and how, uh, you know, not hopeless. But if you just don't think about things, how useless it all really becomes. All you had to do is think about this. All you had to do is choose wrong from right and understand that your pain and sorrow can't be fixed with others' pain and sorrow. And it becomes just this spiraling piece of heartbreak because you so want Dwight to just be okay. You just want his heart to be okay. Almost like it's like this very um, and shot very cool, very blue, and this descent of someone's life falling in on itself, almost like a ruin. So, hence, Blue Ruin. That's kind yeah. of I mean, very apt. What I assume the title is about is just like kind of depression mixed with what a life he could have had because he was smart. He came from a, a like a fairly well off family. Right, he well had potential. Enough. He had all this potential, but he gave all of it up because of one act by one man. And then Jealousy to, and rage. Yeah, and just lived in rage the rest of his life and just wanting this revenge that ultimately got him nothing at all and really fucked up everybody else's life around him and just made everyone else eventually suffer. So he has to kill the entire family and he has to take everyone down with him because he knew from day one, he was not living through this. He didn't plan on living through this. He just planned on getting his revenge and being done. Well, I, it's one of those things too, of, of how I said, it's almost a parody of an action movie because he didn't think any of that through, you know, when you watch an action movie and you watch something like, a Charlie Bronson movie, you know, he goes in with the guns and he gets rid of the bad guys. And at the end of the movie, he has a cigar and has a one liner. And it's funny, you know, uh, the end of True Lies, Schwarzenegger has a cigar and is on the beach and everything's fun because that's what happens in a fucking action movie. You you get rid of the, the bad guys. But when you're just some fumbling dumbass that has real life experience, you know, again, a beautiful shot of the movie is you go through this violence with um, the, the bar, this this great tussle. And he, you know, commits the ultimate sin of murder and then runs 
runs outside and he has this great idea of disabling the cars and he, he stabs the car tire and ends up slashing his own entire hand open with it, just showing how much of a dumbass he is, like a true dummy ass character. And you want to laugh at it almost, but it's you. It's what a normal person would happen. You've again got a great scene where he gets the arrow in the leg and he's going to the pharmacy and he's just limping through with all of the self-surgery stuff. And it's like and you want to laugh get that done. He has to go to the hospital. Yeah, Not only that well, you want to have the- a, like a comical relief scene with it. But what you need to take into into your thought is that's literally what a normal person would be doing, though. This isn't funny. This is reality. This is what's making this so harsh is that you're not Rambo either. You think you're going to be uh, Daryl from The Walking Dead. But no, you're going to steal a gun Dwight in Blue Rune. Well, the gun has a lock on it. Well, I'm going to get this lock off. And you destroy the gun trying to take the lock off. That's pretty much where all this starts of him just like every step of the way. You are bad at this. You are terrible. But it's hard, isn't it? No idea what you're doing. It's one of those things that you you can't really damn someone for having their heart in something, even though it's so wrong. But when you take that to a different perspective, like let's look at Green Room and let's compare it to the Nazis. So they're wiping out people that might be trying to escape and get rid of their Nazi clique. So in their mindset, you know, they're doing the right thing. And you just that's that's what, you know, characterizing or making a character is. You know, I'm sure there are some fucking assholes out there that rooted for the Nazis in Green Room. But I think generally when you watch that movie, you're not supposed to look at it through their eyes. And then, of course, you have the Macon Blair character that is transitional and you see almost not necessarily a sense of empathy, but a sense of humanity. And that's something that's really relevant in all of Jeremy's work. Um, Murder Party, everything is a sense of deep humanity and the different levels and layers that uh, can be human nature, whether it's good, bad, evil, vanity, hatred, depression. He just he really knows how to expose nerves with what individuality is and how people are different because none of his characters are the same he doesn't focus on one thing from murder party to blue ruin to green room it's a vast display of different people so he has a very great understanding of just humans and that works so well for his work and i like kind of an off weird topic here but like just the fact of like every movie that Malcolm blair has been in for selling he gives like this is a really bad term of putting this, but he gives really great facials. But um, <laughs> but I mean, quite literally, the looks on his face really translate. He doesn't have to say words. All of his acting is in his face. And even like, something is his goofy so character. sad throughout every performance I've seen. He just like he just looks lost and like. He just somebody loved me. That's what his face always says to me when I see it. It's just even in green room. It's just like I may be a Nazi, but I I just need love and I'll get out of this. Well, in Murder Party, especially because he plays the pathetic character obsessed with Lexi. And I think at a point of, you know, it doesn't matter your gender. I think anyone can relate to a character that's infatuated with somebody else at some point in your life, that there's something you've never gotten. And the character is just such a creep. He's got the little popsicle stick he's held on to. But it's just the way that Macon portrayed it that has a relatability to it. And that transitions like with Blue Ruin. It doesn't matter who you are. There's a level of sadness that carries with him that you can kind of get behind. And then you've got... um. Shot of the Na- Hold of the Dark. He plays, you know, the the pill head friend uh, at the end of the movie, toward the end of the movie. And again, it's just a, a relatable character. You know, it's you've got the 
the wolf brother killer. I mean, uh, discussing Hold the Dark, I think we did on the, some of the last live episodes of Death by DVD, but that's Saulnier's most recent feature film um, he did for Netflix, and it is a it's a dill of a pickle, I guess you could say. I mean, it's not terrible. I didn't think it was a bad movie. I just, it's definitely not his, I'd say it's probably his weakest film. I've not seen his two episodes of True Detective. I've not, I know he's still two of them. His weakest film is light years ahead of your weakest well, it's, film. So. It's an interesting thing to call it that because I, I completely agree that it's his weakest film, but it's weak because it's, it's very still, like really competently made. Yeah, um, story wise, it's somewhat disconnected. And I think that's majorly why you and I both are calling it weak because there's a lot of inconsistencies with the story. But visually, it's just it's it's one of those things that you find and you're watching on Netflix and you're like, this is a goddamn Netflix movie. And then people say that you know they're going under and this is the type of caliber stuff that they're putting out it's it's just you know Jeremy Saulnier truly has putting he has a history of a cinematography and that's something that I think is essential to being a really good director is knowing how your camera works and you can obviously tell when he is you know in the director's chair what's going on that he knows how to make this look good getting into the visuals of Blue Ruin like um there is a lot of blue in the film. I mean, there is a lot of cascading blue throughout, but and kind of you know cold light. But every time there is that blue, there's also a lot of gold rimming everything. There's usually like a key light of gold using gold or so orange. It's a, yeah, it's an, an interesting dichotomy he's working with throughout the film of just all this blue and like gold and orange light. Well, there's like you speaking of that. There's a, a great scene where he's at his sister's house and. Um, he is he's going through like old boxes of stuff, which I think was Jeremy Sonia's childhood home. And he goes down to the TV and he's looking around. He's trying to you know find if he's on the news or if there's any news of this. And he's sitting on his knees and everything's this like TV lit kind of cascading, creepy, uh, you know, science fiction sort of feel. And everything's lit, really orange coming through the back door. And it's just this thoughtful, almost grim fairy tale look, almost like this fantasy approach to things that it's, it's dreamlike that he's still in this disbelief that he's not on the news or people are hunting him down or the FBI or it's not like heat and there's a gun battle outside, which is funny because it pretty much ensues into that with um, the, the Cleveland family coming in on him to to seek justice on his sister. And he was the one waiting for them. And then the movie starts to spiral into, uh, you know, absolute insanity. Yeah, I'd say about 35 minutes into this movie, you're like, yeah, this isn't going to end well, is it? No one's coming out of this. Well, I think you're left with that question even at the beginning. Like, really, I brought up the scene where Dwight goes to the ocean, and and I read into that as – you know, he's not bathing, but it's almost like baptismal that he's going and getting into the water and he comes out. And then that's when he, he you know, sheds himself and, and gets everything rolling and ready. And that he is now, you know, he's he's Charlie Bronson. You know, he's a motherfucker. We were having discussions this, you know, this week about the visuals and how how people shoot films and stuff like this. The shot where he jumps in the water, that is a gorgeous shot. Tell me why it's a gorgeous shot. Like, one of the interesting things is the fact that Macon Blair is to the far right of the screen. It's not centered. He's not centered in this. It's a far enough way back. It's probably... Well, it's because it's, cause it's not about him, 20, you know? No, it's about everything about, in this shot. Yeah, it's his baptismal. You have to take in the whole environment and the world he's been dwelling in and what's been going on so he can transition out of it and your location begins to change after that. And again, it's around, I think, sunset when they shoot it, another magic hour. So it's, again, 
a lot of blue and a lot of gold throughout the whole film. It's like that. It's just, it's almost like the, the, like the two sides of his character is just this depression and maybe some hope, um, with like the gold light representing that something along those lines. It's something that I think Jeremy is really talented with is is showing emotion visually. Um, like Murder Party has a great deal of dialogue in it, but Blue Ruin it's sort of incidental. A lot of the dialogue is is helpful, but yeah, for the I, most part, it's Dwight's emotion carrying what's happening. Probably a hundred lines in the entire movie, maybe yeah. even less. I don't know how long the script was. It couldn't have been much because it was mostly description. There's barely any dialogue in it, and, and it just, doesn't need it. No, it doesn't. Like what makes the, what is basically a very simple story that you could explain in about one sentence, you drag that out over an hour and a half running time and you get little pieces of information to indicate what's been going. You don't immediately know any of this stuff and you just start learning it and learning it and learning to what's ultimately going to happen in the end. That's what's satisfying about it. Not getting all the answers immediately and just like waging your way through all this. Because if you just start with just the premise, hey, this guy killed my parents and I want to get revenge on him. You've got no movie to watch. Just the fact that of how you're revealing it is important as well. Well, even so, like just talking about how things are revealed, one of my like most absolute favorite scenes in the movie that I think is almost one of the most sinister is Dwight finally gets to the house and he finds the grave of the man that literally killed his parents. And his son took the crime, went to jail for it, got out, and he killed his son in revenge. And he goes inside and he drinks glass after glass of water to piss on the man's headstone. And it's that's such an incredibly deviant action, but funnily enough, out of uh, all of his attempts throughout the entire movie, that was his one true form of, of revenge, was being able to do that. And then he follows it up with actually giving Teddy a proper burial and burying him next to his father and going through the, the, the trouble of making him a headstone. The the empathy and the sympathy put into it. I mean, that that's massive to give the, the somebody like that, that you, you detest so much, that you hold uh, responsible for destroying everything you love, to give them uh, an honorable burial quote unquote and still after the actions of just with intent drinking all that water to piss on the grave and it's just such a unique uh, ad and such a unique it also uh, really it, it lets you look into as well yeah you get to look really into Dwight's mind and see the pain and suffering that he has that this is the, the one thing he finally has left to make himself feel better it's also pissing a on this grave childish act Oh, yeah, he like, totally regresses to a child to the end to of the a movie. child in that point of just like fine I'll just piss on your gravestone to show the level of his just minuscule being able to act on anything fine I'll just piss on you I'll piss on your grave then it's like you should have just moved on with your life, dude. You should have you just, just like, pissed on his grave 10 years ago. You know, you should have just I'm, driven up there and pissed on his grave and gotten the side of You're holding on to this from when I'm sure you were like 16 years old or whatever. Well, I, I think that's the whole feeling. The whole statement we've kind of uncovered here, he literally should have just come pissed on his grave and this would have been avoided. And at the end of the movie, it's too late because he, he had Teddy leave the voicemail. So all these things are set in motion. It's not like it's incidental. You know, he has Teddy in the, in the car and has him call and leave a voicemail. He's captured on audio tape getting his fucking head blown off. So this family is going to react. They're not going to they're not going to stop. He knows he has to, to solve this. So his last ditch for his soul, for his emotion is I'm going to piss on this grave because that's what I got. I got a bladder filled with fucking tap water. I'm going to piss on this grave and I'm going to bury this guy's son and I'm going to kill the rest of his family. And at that point, do you, you know, I guess you could look deep into the character and wonder what he's wondering. But I think he recognized that this was the end and this was, you know, 
death is certain, life is not. Yeah, there's I mean, a, it, there's a life for his family, but not him. The last little bit before he basically blows everyone away, it's just like he's finally matured and turned into an adult. He's not such a pissy little bitch anymore. Like, as and then he been kills kind of Jan Brady. And then it, he's too far gone. He still had. I'm like, I'm an adult now, and I know this is all fucked up. But now this is where we're at, so I got to finish it. I got to finish all of this. The keys are in the car. The keys are in the car. The keys are in the car. Heartbreaking. So you got yeah. a rating for this sucker? It's five and five. It's a tremendous film. It's incredibly well made, and the story, albeit a very simplistic one, and can be highly entertaining if you just know how to tell a fucking story like this. I I think Green Room is shot really well And I think it's a a really interesting movie But I think Blue Ruin is Jeremy Solney's best film And 5 out of 5 Moving on, our finale We saved the best for last Well, I guess that's debatable to many people But written by Barry Gifford, David Lynch Directed by David Lynch Lost Highway from 1997 This was, I think, the the biggest pickle For Thanksgiving Because I, I just didn't know what I wanted to wrap it with, I've been watching some David Lynch lately, and I, you know, I watched Mulholland Drive, and I watched Lost Highway, and then it's been a back and forth for about a month uh, between you and I of, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And finally, something snapped, and I, I made you pick, and we ended up with Lost Highway. So I guess one of these picks on Thanksgiving, Hank Smith, 2019. I just prefer Lost Highway over Mulholland Drive. I, I wanted to, to do something that it was provocative to talk about, and... I, Mulholland Drive is very provocative to talk about, but I think with the rest of the movies, you know, again, I have this whole theory. You know, if you listen to an episode of Death by DVD, you're almost given a little mini marathon, or in some cases, a very long marathon. So, four movies that I think you could watch together. I think Lost Highway fits a lot better than Mulholland Drive. And transitioning from the tone of Blue Ruin and what we were just discussing, this is uh, about not the letting same go. Goddamn story. <laughs> yeah, very, very similar. So these are going to go right directly into each other and I you know talking about what Lost Highway is about I think is a debacle on its own because I guess there's two trains of thought that there's two movies two stories I beg to differ in fact I think one character doesn't even exist at all and, well two characters don't even it's exist one long story what do you mean two stories well, could be two stories. To, well, you know, people want to think that this whole thing with Balthazar Getty is a completely different story and a different thing going on where it's what's uh, you're filling you the, the part where Bill Pullman literally physically transforms into Balthazar Getty. Like literally you see it. Oh, uh, even happen. Meant David Lynch likes to refer to it as it's sort of like a, a mental fugue. Nobody really becomes anybody or anybody really exists. I mean, Bill Perm- Bill Pullman certainly exists and he killed his wife. And when he becomes somebody else, what you're given is the rest of the story. How, why, when and where is this person actually there or a part of it? Or is it Bill Pullman's manifestation of himself while all of this stuff happened and the pieces got put together until he eventually kills his wife and her what, what's a male mistress called a mister i don't know i don't know uh, whatever 
the guy that uh, you know she's fucking, and so it's his mental placement, and this is you know my humble opinion of where he's put himself in, in this entire piece and all the deaths and uh, horrendous acts that are wrapped inside of it, and then you've got the man from another place who simply is the devil or death. I mean, his fucking phone number ends with six six six. You invite him into your house. He was always there. It's the the evil inside all men. Killer Bob from Twin Peaks. The same theme. David Lynch. David Lynch's work with very similar themes. Yes, it's all very quite literal. It's right there. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, not it's, it's all to be vague. This is not uh, like I mean, like Inland Empire is an incredibly vague movie. Mulholland has a lot of twists and turns into it. This is a very clear picture of what's happening. So you've got with Balthazar Getty the representation of how this man's wife began to cheat on him, and I guess people can get easily confused by Patricia Arquette's dual characters. It's just one person. There's not dual characters. It's just connecting the dots to the story because Bill Pullman wasn't really there. He's a a semi-famous saxophone player. He doesn't know exactly how his wife cheated on him. He just knows that she eventually cheated on him with a hardcore pornographer named Dick Laurent, and he wrapped those ends up. And then what you're shown throughout the rest of the movie is how those ends were wrapped up with the Balthazar Getty, which is him placing himself essentially there. Right? Well, I mean, somewhat. I mean, it's... There you go. I want to hear you. It is a lot more about themes of violence inherent in people. And Bill Pullman is a jealous husband who, I mean, where it really kind of reveals itself in this film, he literally does become Baltazar Getty, who was a guy. I mean, he inhabits him, possesses him, whatever the fuck you want to say, because... He's trying to get away from himself. He's done a despicable act to his wife. Well, I mean, you can take it on a literal aspect, but you can also say that he's in his jail cell coming up with this placement of him not being in the situation and and, and and getting out of it. You know, he might not actually starting everything because he restarts his Baltazar Getty and starts fucking Patricia Arquette again. Exactly. Patricia Arquette tell him you can't have me because you never could. You'll never have me and you never will be able to have it all connects to one thing because it's not necessarily a, a, a possession or some body horror piece. It's this guy in a jail cell. Like, you've got this representation of his awful headaches and it becoming this thing, and that's how Lynch is showing the dream. But in reality, it's this guy trying to come out of the situation in his head. But unfortunately, all paths lead back to the same thing because theme that Lynch has used his entire fucking career in Twin Peaks wrapped up in a nutshell. You can't change the past. You just can't. No matter how he's many times you try, you can't. The same mistake over and over again. And, and if you try to change the past, to, that's what happens. Yes, he keeps trying to go back and fix this mistake he continually makes. And the mistake is he's so in love with a, a woman that he can never possibly have or hold on to. It's but not even so much that he's in love with her. It's the idea of her. It's the idea of love. It's the idea of the, the sanctity of you don't cheat, you don't do this, we work things out. It's possessionship. It's, you know, owning somebody. He loves the idea of this perfect life, but she's obviously unhappy. And as you spiral into the story and find out the deeper levels of deviance and who Mr. Eddie and Dick Laurent actually is, you see that, you know, again, a theme with David Lynch that this beautiful nice society's underbelly is quite dark and that there's always a dark side that there's always an opposition to everything and everyone yeah there's a polar force there's always going to be a negative to a positive and it's just inescapable but if you can find a way to embrace it and deal with it you know you can or you become somebody completely different to escape it and you end up meeting it in the middle because time's a goddamn motherfucking flat circle yeah basically I mean Big Ed's always going to cheat on his wife 
I mean, that's the thing. It's like Big Ed's a real nice guy in Twin Peaks, but he is cheating on his wife. And she's so, mentally unstable and obviously needs help. Like, it's kind of a dick move. Like, break down Big Ed, bit of a dick. Like, she needs help. Inherent in us all. And do how much do we choose to let it in? And in the case of Lost Highway, which I refer to as Lynch's goth film, like everybody. Keeps I mean, this is his. It's it goth is the most apt way of saying it because this is his noir movie. He wanted it dark, and it's not just the soundtrack. I mean, all of these things fit perfectly in together. Like the movie enters and begins with the David Bowie song. One of my favorite scenes when uh, Balthazar Getty's at the nightclub with his girlfriend, and I by the Smashing Pumpkins is playing, and it's the one part of you know is it any wonder i can't sleep just kind of echoing over and over again so all these themes and thoughts in the movie are portrayed pretty eloquently throughout you know the soundtrack and the design which again is is something i really appreciate and have always enjoyed with david lynch is his ability to you know mix pop aspects and um you know, just part of culture and in, into the movies. And this obviously, like you said, has a very big goth reference. You've got Twiggy Ramirez and Marilyn Manson from Manson's band uh, at the end of the movie. And just this very uh, leather daddy, greasy kind of overt tone to dust off an old death by DVD phrase. It's greasy. It's still, uh, you know, I don't know. There's just something about it. In, in total for me that leaves me almost unsatisfied though because I don't think at the end of the movie that there was any real you know lesson like there was no real significance to what Bill Pullman went through it's yes, just him it escape he's just escaping it he's doomed to continue doing it yeah but you learn the lesson and the lesson is you're never gonna have her and I you take that however you want to it doesn't have to be your girlfriend your wife or any it doesn't have to be a significant well, it's other. ascertainable or unascertainable goals and this and is going means. to never be obtainable ever no matter how many different ways you approach it it's never going to work out and you're going to continue but the movie the ends thing. significantly with his face changing as he goes down the highway because he's going to take another role and try it again. Like he's trying gonna... it all fucking over again. But that's what I mean by the hopeless nature of it. It doesn't matter that he's never going to have her. He's still going to try. So it ends on this. I hate the term, but nihilistic level of it's just going to be repetitive. He's just going to keep meeting the circle. So what did he learn from this experience outside of Dick Laurent is dead and there's nothing, nothing that can be done. Because yeah, no, that's most what I people mean. Nothing don't learn anything. People go to jail and they end up back in jail because they repeat the same shit. Well, now you, we just got to my point, so I don't know what we disagreed with now. <laughs> I don't know because that's what I've been saying this whole time. It's just like you well, keep saying this, he doesn't learn anything. No, he doesn't. You do as a watcher, as okay, someone no, on the outside yeah, of no, this. But that's not what I'm saying. You as a watcher, you learn something, but that's where I'm left with this hopelessness because he doesn't it's not that i imperatively need that but i need something to come from it outside of he's going to repeat this continuously because where does this place everyone back into it outside of dick Laurent is dead so what the was bluebirds to come back to eat the bugs because yeah, sure. this is not blue velvet this is a completely different ending than blue velvet because blue velvet has hope at the end blue he's velvet still is open the- to that hope Lost Highway comes around. He's a 50-something-year-old man. He ain't got no hope. He knows he's going to die in the next 30 to 40 years. It's well, all too, downhill from here. Blue Velvet is, is in a sense of reality. Blue Velvet is in an almost world of our own as to where something like Lost Highway seems to transcend. And in my head, I feel that, you know, with, with David Lynch and his universe, almost quite like someone like Quentin Tarantino, his Hollywood is a different place. His Hollywood is where Mulholland Drive takes place and Lost Highway takes place and literally the 
the highways and the, the upper rounds of the city or mystical magical portals that loop in and out of time and it just it seems to show through his film and like you know this interconnection of Jack Nance appearing nonstop and always being a part of it like you see in Twin Peaks season three what year is this what what is the time that it's almost timeless to me and I guess and, that okay. is a hopelessness that is essential to you know what, that what you the product up. is Twin Peaks season three, the end of that, what happens to Cooper? It's the same thing that's happened to Bill Bill Pullman. Oh, wait a minute. I didn't learn anything. I'm still stuck in this. This is never going to end. I mean, no matter what reality I go well, to, no, there's a different Palmer is always dead. No, he learns it finally, though, there, because, I mean, Cooper's left in the Black Lodge for 20 years or whatever. He gets out. There's all this big ramba-jamba of changing who you are. He becomes Richard, all this stuff of finding your identity and who you are. And then, after trying to pull Laura out of time and saving her, it's finally realized that the, the magnificent ending, I loved the ending. A lot of people fucking hated it, but, uh, you know, blow me and David Lynch. Why don't you? What year is this? Just showing he he did learn his lesson like I, uh, that scream, him looking at the camera. They learned their lesson. You're now lost in time. Bill Pullman's just. But he's still going to repeat it, even though he knows he's going to repeat it. That's the point. It's in the same thing. But he Pullman. knows he knows he's going to repeat it and he's still going to keep doing it. I don't think I, 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 I feel that at the end of something like Twin Peaks, uh, Agent Cooper recognizes and realizes I have to repeat this because this is what I have to do now as to where Bill Pullman is more of a desperation of I have to do this because there might be a slight chance somewhere, somehow, some way it will work out unless I prove every way isn't possible. And I think it's more of a hopelessness as to Agent Cooper knows this is just what I have to do. This is how the, the page turns. And Bill Pullman is I that have is to. splitting some hairs, man. That's really splitting some hairs. Hey, it's Thanksgiving, man. That's what we're doing. <laughs> I mean, that's like oh. it's looking at different aspects of you, <coughs> though, because, I mean, you can't just lump it all together and say Twin Peaks and Lost Highway and Mulholland's the same thing. And, you know, there's people out there that want that. They want it to all be one universe. They want. Oh, it to no, 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 no. I'm not saying it's one universe. What I'm saying is it's all basically the same fucking story. It's yeah. about people looking for redemption and they will never find that redemption because deep down people are fucking shit. But there is that returning us to Lost Highway, I guess. And it's not like a complaint. You know, it's not like I have an issue. It's just a personal feeling. I feel at the end of the movie, you're left with he didn't learn a goddamn thing that he's doing this again and again and again. And he's going to change and he's going to contact death. He's going to contact whoever the man from the other places again and again and again because he didn't learn. He he's desperate to make things better despite accepting what's going on. And it's the it's lack of acceptance. Like hell, that though. Hungry. Well, no, it is hell. I mean, I, I definitely think that, um, you know, Beretta is Robert Blake is, is pretty much the devil is death. Well, I that mean, he's is flaming home and all that, even though, you know, you still have to do it. You still have to repeat. I have no control. This is my hell. It's purgatory. Basically killing my wife over and over and over and over well, again. Well, see, that returns us to it's it's that is what it is his wife it's his possession he doesn't he's not torn up over killing her or her dying it's because she wronged him so he's going to continue doing this till he's not wronged he's not trying to fix it because she's dead he's trying to fix it because he got fucked over and oh hurt. no 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 he doesn't no, want no, i'm not to i'm not saying it's like it, that it's like there's some sort of redemption from his character that he realizes these things. No, no, no it's not that it's like when i say love i don't naturally automatically go to well, it's love and it's perfect and it's fine. No, it's just psychotic fucking craziness. 
of love of him just whatever. And you've got that representation with Balthazar Getty and the the tribulations him and his girlfriend are going through as he meets the Patricia Arquette character. And there's that big scene on the the front yard with Gary Boosie where she yells, you know, you just want to fuck me. And he's, you know, they're talking back. Like, did you tell him? Does he know what's going on? And you get this weird omnius feeling that his family, his friends, everyone knows what's going on. Everyone knows that he's not real. Almost everyone knows that this is some bizarre fever dream, but him, but they can't wake him up. They can't let him in on it. And then, you know, you transition to the Mr. Eddie sequence with the man from another place, the, the amazing Robert Blake. I believe this was his last up to date film performance. A lot of last performances. He went to jail like not long after this. Uh, You got the end of um, Richard Pryor's career. I believe he died right after this. And I think this was the, the very, very last film for Jack Nance. I don't even think uh, he lived to see this released with his oddly mysterious death. But um, definitely wasn't the last film for Robert Loja. Yeah, no, definitely. Jack Nance was murdered, guys. Look that up. Even Wikipedia, like, alarmingly. It's weird how there's no resolution to what the fuck happened to Jack Nance. Probably hit out on him. I don't know. It's odd we did this whole episode, and I didn't get to talk about Robert Loja. Ah, for Robert Loja. Oh, for, oh my God, it's Robert Loja. B for by George, it's Robert Loja. E for everybody, look. It's Robert Loja. Ah, for Roy, look over here. It's Robert Loja. You're going to go all the way to R? You're not going to finish it with T? T. T. Thank that God, guy. it's Robert Loja. There you go. There you uh, go. I was leaving a dramatic pause. I learned that while we're working on this mass grave set. I learned about dramatic pauses. I learned about acting. Like I said, I kept that movie together. If it wasn't for me making single cups of coffee and a Keurig at two in the morning, people wouldn't have been able to get by. Congratulations, man. Don't take yeah, away man. my yeah. coffee making skills. So what if I woke up as you? And you were a mechanic. Never mind. This was going to be a dumb joke. And I just, it's falling apart as I'm saying it. <laughs> so Lost I'm Highway. It. It's, it, it, there's, a, there's a handful of David Lynch movies that are, I think, kind of easily digestible. And Lost Highway, for some reason, never makes that list. But, you know, like Dune, um, it wasn't his fault it turned out that way because it was Dune. And it just wasn't a good idea at all. We'll see how the new one turns out. But, like, Elephant Man, Wild and Heartful. We'll see how the new one is. Technology has changed to such a uh, just decadent amount of stuff being able to be done that maybe uh, Dune is doable. But again, if you've read the series, there are things like most things aren't described. You don't you're not told what anything looks like. So it's it's truly and indefinitely up to whatever the, the director's vision is going to be. And looking at the limitations that David Lynch faced filming. And for one, it just unless you're going to do them all just filming Dune, no matter what it does not end well like it obviously ends directive into a sequel so you know whatever you want to do with it is whatever you want to do with it i look forward to seeing it but i have an appreciation for david lynch's film i mean i think it's it's not as strongest by any means there's but nothing it's, wrong it's with it if you've read the book the problem with making dune into a movie and they are trying again is the fact that you can't take 10 minutes just to explain a android revolution nor how an entire religion works that's the problem 
there's yeah just because June starts with information literally just transfer that to people. You'd have to like read a book before you even saw the movie. Well, I mean, Dune begins with like twenty thousand years of history right off the bat that is yes. stuck at you in like ten pages, and then it translates into just the spiraling. Uh, you know, I I enjoy it. Wonderful story, and I I know like you, I've read quite a lot of the series. You've probably read much more than me. Um, I I think I'm only on Frank Herbert's books. I've not transcended. I to didn't do any of that. I did Frank Herbert and I quit. Fuck the uh, rest of that shit. I will spend the rest of my life reading the Dune series because I enjoy where it goes and how crazy it is and the fact that fucking Duncan Idaho manages to be alive and absolute all of it. And the new movie sounds good, but what David Lynch did, I don't know, it, it has, and especially the actors and the cast he chose, it just has um, a fondness on top of me. And then you've got something like Elephant Man, which was a, a Mel Brooks production and just uh, absolutely different for the, the Fellini dreamlike shit David Lynch loved to do and I think a really firm fun piece for him but Lost Highway doesn't seem I mean you go over it you talk about it you you look it up it has a density to it and it seems very bizarre but you have to take into consideration that yes it is a dream but you know it's not some mystical universe it's not like Twin Peaks there's no Black Lodge like White Lodge it's just thought reflection and a reflection thought um, remorse regret hate never coming to terms with the cycle of life that things grow change move on and there is birth and death and life and it's it's part of everything it might not be some physical birth of a child but it could be something as significant as i don't know just accepting that tomorrow is going to be a different day or you're going to quit smoking or maybe become a vegan it's just fucking changing things is is all that birth is it's a continuous cycle you can accept it or not acknowledge it and be caught repeating the same shit over and over and over choose what (laughs) i don't know why did you end it with that you got to make a choice. I mean, choose what you want to do. You can accept oh, it or you don't have you to. You said choose. It. I probably oh. thought you just screamed at the word Jews. Oh, no. Wow. I was yeah. like, what are you talking about? No, 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 no. Where did that come from? To, to clarify, choose. C-H-O-O-S-E. Choose. Yeah. No, make a decision. Make a choice of what you want to do. Um, uh, nothing anti-Semitic. At all. <laughs> it was so weird. I'm so know. sorry. Yeah, you no, screamed that. Jesus at me. I'm like, okay. Oops. But why? What? what? Where did you come from? That's going to be the hard cut that ends this episode. Jews! Um, yeah, no, I, I'm sorry. I meant I meant shoes. But, yeah, you know, you have to make a choice. And Jews, whatever. <laughs> Lost Highway. Is David Lynch Jewish? I don't think he is. Oh, he is not. I, I, I don't know what David Lynch is. He's a animal of a different color. He's a horse of a, a different of color. The direction his shit comes from, I would say he grew up Irish Catholic, perhaps. I like to call him Davy with the good hair. One of the interesting things about David Lynch, and and you know, no matter what you you like or dislike about who he is as a director, is his storytelling when it comes to America and the underside of the American public and what people are and what people's thoughts are and you know Twin Peaks season three like it or love it I I really enjoyed you know some of the the thoughts and and 
additions to who these characters are and what they've become and he didn't get a clear grip of everyone and that's kind of what life is that you know you hit 30 and you start growing up and you lose contact with people and years go by days go by you don't know you know what your old buddies from high school are doing or if they have kids or how life has changed and I think that was really well represented with the final season of Twin Peaks that you just kind of got these blips and glimpses of who people were and what they're doing because that's pretty much what happens in life I'm not happy with Big Ed's end oh it's even worse now because you know Norma's dead so how do you like that for an ending hey Twin Peaks fans Big Ed's just sitting alone again striking matches he probably quit smoking he's getting a little bit older eating soup eating soup so that was Thanksgiving that's Hanksmas that's Hanksmas 2019 we did four I don't know I think fun movies I think it would be an interesting marathon sit down tell us what you think about it did you like it a little bit more docile than I think yeah you'll probably be a little depressed by the end of this but hey there are some really cool movies and and what do you think about Lost Highway email us Facebook us Instagram us tell us what you want on the show next week we'll I don't know maybe we'll sing maybe we'll read a book maybe we'll talk about all the silent I hope not <laughs> that's Thanksgiving that's it the ashtray's full the bottle's empty um, a merry Thanksgiving to all of you a merry Hanksmas to all of you and you know Festivus is coming up it's the holiday season be strong keep your waitress bartender we haven't said that in a while what was the original call sign was it just the ashtray's full the bottle's empty well, how about that? The ashtray is very full and the bottle is empty. Happy Thanksgiving! time we conclude our broadcasting. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. Death by DVD is broadcast from on top of the blue crystal sunshine mountain in town, USA. Transmitters on top of the Empire State